Hello, Garden Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Friday appearance. His weekly Friday appearance is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kylie McDaniel. In the conversation that follows, McDaniel considers both the Chicago Cubs and also the Boston Red Sox prospect list, uh, which he released over the past week, in addition to other various and sundry topics. Before uh, the audio of that conversation, and as he has done in previous weeks, McDaniel has provided an audio interlude, an audio interlude which does appear to be some combination of Irish actor Liam Neeson's voice and also the Beastie Boys. That is Liam Neeson with the Beastie Boys. So what's to follow? The end of this introduction, Liam Neeson with the Beastie Boys, and then a conversation with lead prospect analyst Kyle McDaniel. Thank you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. I can't It seems like you're always calling me like 10 seconds before I'm ready, like as I'm sitting down and like putting down my drink and all that. But yeah, yeah. this time I, I you called 30 seconds later than that, so I was ready. Yeah, I um, yeah, I was just uh, putting up here, opening up some windows of uh, uh, your most recent uh, contributions to the evaluating the prospect series. And what's your evaluation of my evaluation of other people's evaluations? Well. <laughs> I don't know. I have to consult an MC Escher drawing to, to fully understand. Uh, no, I mean good. They're good, I guess. What do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you judge it against? Like, does anybody else actually know what's going on? I just. Oh, I, I've already started doing calls for the next group of teams, and I was just talking to a White Sox guy, and I was like, uh, "Yeah, I'm gonna run through, give you some names that I have, and you can kind of tell me why I'm wrong." He's like, "Well, we're all wrong. Like, we're just <laughs> we're just trying to like reduce the margin of error." Like yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, I um, I read one of my uh, my guys is Emil Chorin, and uh, an aphorism I read by him today. Well, let me get it for you. This will be a good. Uh, I, this is unusual, I understand, but this will be a good foundation for the rest of the conversation. One moment. When you said my guys, I thought you meant one of the Sistulis guys on the list. I'm like, I don't know that name. What system is he in? Okay. That was quite a thud. How big is that book? Yeah, it's no. He says, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, this is good. This is good. He says, uh, he writes, I should say, uh, the only thing young people should be taught is that there is virtually nothing to be hoped for from life. He continues, one dreams of a catalog of disappointments, which would include all the disillusionments reserved for each and every one of us to be posted in the schools. This guy sounds like he'd be a blast at a party. <laughs> I think he actually probably would be. Uh, he was a little bit on the misanthropic side of things. Uh, but, yes, he wants Once to – Once I learn what that word means, I will understand what you meant. A catalog of disappointments. And so really uh, I think what, you, what you're mentioning here uh, with this uh, scout, this front office sort uh, with whom you're speaking, is you just – it's more the nature of how you're going to fail as, as opposed to whether you'll fail or not. Well, yeah, which – 
I don't know. Like, I've always tried to figure out why I gravitated to baseball than other sports. I mean, it's not like I was, like, professional-level quality where I think a lot of guys are like, oh, I, you know, played at, you know, University of Virginia and then played one year in pro ball, and so I work in baseball. It's kind of decided for them by stuff other than their interests, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I... I mean, I was equally as skilled at a non-professional level at different sports. Why did I gravitate to baseball? And I'm still not sure why, but I do feel like uh, the amount of failure involved in scouting and projecting minor leaguers and the amount of failure involved in uh, being a hitter, you're going to fail 70% of the time if you're you know, Hall of Famer and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And just the amount of repetitions and the fact that there's also uh, a very easy way to sort of measure all this stuff. Like, I think that whole, like, Interaction is interesting to me, whereas I feel like for other people it's like, oh, it's the beauty of the game and it's the grace of how Bob Costas tells us to enjoy it. Like, it's not that for me. Like, I'm not really a fan in that way. Right. I think I'm, like, stimulated by the, you know, the, the method and the ways and the nooks and crannies and how you evaluate. I would also say with regard to um, the prospect analysis part of it specifically, um, one of the things I enjoy about it, uh, in, I enjoy, I should say, reading about it and learning about it, not necessarily uh, being very proficient at it, uh, is that the player universe is so huge. Um, there's always, uh, you, you feel like it's hard all to contain at once inside your head, whereas um, I feel as though maybe with some of the other sports, the player universes are smaller, and certainly like professional basketball. I guess you could develop like an encyclopedic knowledge of the Italian and Spanish leagues in addition to uh, the league, you know, like the NBA and maybe... Um, but even their draft is limited to like thirty or forty guys that actually matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something. There's something uh, pleasantly overwhelming about the sheer number of people who who are um, who play in affiliated baseball or on the outskirts of it. Yeah, and I've also told people uh, another one of my many answers to this question. I sound like the Joker at this point. Um, is I like I don't watch full games on TV. I can't remember the last time I've done that. I'm not even sure I've ever done that before. Like just sit in front of a TV for three hours and watch a game. Part of that is sort of the you know the way our culture is now. With even if you're watching the game for three hours, you're constantly checking your phone, your computer. Mm -hmm. But the other part of it is if you send me to a high school game and you know provided there's a couple guys worth paying attention to that you know could play at the next level. If you give me a radar gun and a stopwatch, it'll keep my attention for three hours, and I'll be, like, locked in and paying attention and picking up everything. And if you set me down the third baseline at a Rays game, and it's, like, you know, not in a position to be sort of doing something, mm -hmm. that's when I start having conversations with the people I'm with and not paying attention to the game, because it's, like, my brain doesn't do well with the have a beer, sit in the stands, and just enjoy the game. Like, I need to have something to do. And the fact that a, a game where there's, you know, basically handed two rosters and you said, here's 50 guys, you've got five games to put them all in order. Like, that is something you're always working on. And I think that sort of, uh, that amount of action, like, I think goes back to sort of the stimulation. Like, I like the idea of here's two rosters, put all 50 guys in order, go. And, you know, here it's Monday, and then by Friday you got to have all the answers, and it could be worth millions and millions of dollars if you have it right. Like, there's like there's stakes well, to it. Uh, to be clear, not to you. <laughs> no, to someone else. Yeah, to someone else. Over the and, course of my career, it may possibly be worth a million dollars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, someone someone already more successful than you will be will be benefiting from that. Yeah, and I I mentioned to you earlier in the week that I uh, it's funny that these like multi million dollar decisions are about players, and at some point 
especially if you're more of like a pro scout as opposed to an amateur scout, the amateur scouts are going into these uh, going into these houses and talking to these players and know them pretty well. Whereas the pro scouts, it's more of a sit in the stands, talk to the scouts, maybe talk to a coach. If a player's charting in front of you, you can strike up a conversation. But it's generally like a little bit more removed as far as interacting with the players. And I was at a high school scrimmage of uh, the, probably the two best high school teams in Tampa. And I was sitting there talking to a scout, talking to an agent, and then one of the agent's players was also there, kind of had nothing to do, figured he'd go to a game. And we just started talking, and I was thinking at the end, I was like, that guy seemed like a, you know, just sort of a young, normal, 20-year-old kid or so. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's the guy that I'm writing about. Like, oh, he's bad at this, he's good at this, he could be worth that, like, he might be traded for this. And I was like, yeah, kind of, sometimes you take a step back and realize these these are still kids, which people say, but you kind of forget until you have a conversation. You're like, oh, yeah, this could be one of my little sister's friends. Oh yeah! Oh wow! Yeah, that's um, when you say it like that. That's uh, that is striking. The you mentioned the difference between the amateur versus pro scouts. I, I suppose that's not necessarily a distinction that I think of particularly often. I guess when I think of scouts, I'm probably almost always thinking of amateur scouts because um, that seems like uh, it, it seems to have perhaps um, I mean mistakenly I'm sure, but the most romance attached to it. Um, yeah. One imagines the the bird dog scout, you know. Uh, uh, We're talking about baseball players here. Let's not let's not get onto animals. I don't want yeah, to right. Uh, but using a you know like using almost mystical powers to divine the talents of this one player as opposed to all the others. Uh, whereas, I mean, a pro scout's responsibilities. Can, can, I mean, it's a naive question, but this is is this a, this includes some combination of advanced. Scouting and also um, scouting another team's players for uh, possible trades down the road. Yeah, I guess the the, the postures are different. Like uh, minor league or pro scout, which is typically minor leagues. Usually, if you if you do primarily big leagues, you're called a big league scout, mm-hmm. and there's fewer and fewer of those every year. It's typically like a handful of maybe one or two per team. Some teams have zero, and just let the pro guys you know go see the teams in September because there's minor league type guys up there also. Um, but yeah, the the pro scouts the posture is. I'm going to the park of generally another organization, you know, one in 30 chance at your park, and I am collecting intel on the enemy, basically. And they, lucky for me, put on these games that are public so that I get to watch them so that I can collect this intel. It's sort of a spy-type idea uh, on other teams. But it's like accepted spying. Yeah, yeah, it's an, yeah. Exactly. It's like going to a trade show where everyone's got a booth. It's like, it's okay, but the idea is you're trying to figure out what's not at the booth, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas amateur scouting is like a meat market. Like, everyone is available. Every kid can be talked to. Even in college where they're kind of sheltered, they still set up times, a couple times a year, where, uh, you know, scouts can talk to the players. And it's basically everyone is, all the players are trying to market themselves to every team. And every team is trying to, you know, keep secrets, I guess, about their evaluations but it's very clear what's going on. Uh, whereas in pro scouting, it's not always uh, as transparent. Like you don't get to sit down with the player, and so you have to. If you don't know the kid already from amateur wise, you have to talk to a scout that did know him, or maybe you know one of the coaches or somebody in the front office of that organization. Like there's a lot more. I don't want to say espionage because it's not really what it is, but it's a lot more of those sorts of things. Whereas amateur scouting is much more straightforward. But then we also talked about how pro scouting, you kind of know what you're going to grade most of these guys before you even go to the ballpark, whereas amateur scouting, it's you could run into a first-round pick accidentally during the spring and not know it, which happens a couple times each year. Um, and the potential gain 
uh, is enormous. Whereas in pro scouting, it's more grabbing small edges as you see them, which is obviously what it's like at the big league level too. Right, right. Well, you, I think you shared an anecdote a couple weeks ago, I think, regarding Shane Green, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was the, uh, which is essentially like friend of a friend, something like this, friend of a scout. Yeah, uh, didn't yeah. even throw during the spring before the draft, caught him in a bullpen, and and it turned out he was awesome and had no expectation for him to be good. Right. And uh, right, and I guess that that's the sort of thing that happens. Is there any, uh, do, again, naive question, do uh, do scouts go back and forth between uh, pro and amateur scouting ever? Yeah, and in general, like the traditional way things are done is uh, – Guy, guy plays pro ball, retires, you know, somewhere between 23 and 28, uh, maybe spends a year as a bird dog or as like a, you know, doing lessons, uh, for kids around his house. And then after, you know, a year, two years of experience of getting an idea of what scouting is, sometimes it's in a front office, he'll get that experience. Sometimes as a coach, he'll get that experience. But generally, you get a year or two under your belt and then you get an area scout job, which is considered sort of entry level. Uh, and then you either move to a better area or you move to cross checker, which is overseeing three or four area scouts, or you move to pro scouting, which is seen as a promotion, more money. Uh, but these days, uh, more and more guys that didn't play pro ball are getting scouting jobs. And because of the elements of an area scout, which is going into the homes, talking to the players, telling them what pro ball is like, when you have a guy like that that didn't play pro ball, sometimes that guy may be better suited to doing the pro scouting parts. Than oh, the sort okay. of than all the all the social elements that go into being an area scout. So now there are especially more uh, like short season rookie ball low A type, like lower profile pro scouting jobs that are for those types of guys, of which I would be one also, uh, as opposed to the area scout because now there's different sorts of entry level guys. I get it. And uh, here's another thing that uh, has occurred to me before in terms of the we're sort of this is all relating to the the profiles of scouts. Um, if you know the sort of hierarchies, that's one thing we mentioned. Um, and also, I'm curious about the strengths and weaknesses. Um, scouting pitcher, scouting pitchers, is a very different thing than scouting hitters. And I would assume also that if a if a player has been a pitcher, he'll probably know more about this. I don't know for a fact, but might. And then if someone yes. has been a, a hitter and field player, he might know more about that. I'm curious if either a there are scouts who specialize in one or the other, or B, um, maybe certainly related, if a a GM or a cross-checker will trust a scout's opinion more with regard to one or the other position? Uh, Yeah, that's complicated because that would include people admitting their limitations, which they don't like to do publicly, whereas internally people know sort of what people can do and what they can't. Mm -hmm. It's a little harder to know outside of the organization because they're not going to advertise that because, in a sense, all 30 teams could pluck that area scout and make him a cross-checker, so you don't want to tell people, oh, not so good at hitters, I'm more of a pitcher guy. (laughs) Because there's not really jobs for that specifically. A couple teams, I know the Cardinals specifically tried that, Back when uh, Jeff Luna was their scouting director, they had like a pitching cross checker, or I believe it was like a college pitching scout. Like it was sort of uh, targeted like that, which I don't think they're doing anymore, and I don't know of another team that does that. Um, but there's also like say the pitching coordinator that does the minor league system and the catching coordinator. Those guys go see potential, you know, top two round guys. So it's not like those guys don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some teams where the pitching coordinator uh, will go see a lot of players and have a lot of input into the room. And then there's other teams where it's he'll get given two or three players that have especially interesting mechanics to get his opinion. Uh, I find catching instructors usually have more 
input because it that seems catching defensively is something that I think every scout admits that they have trouble with because it's very difficult to tell. And as you probably know, as like a prospect watcher, those catchers develop in very different ways and often like stall around double A just because of all the rigors of catching, all the little stuff you have to learn, and you know the language barrier for the Latin guys. Like there's all kinds of things that happen. Uh, so they like having sort of the specialist in there for that. That's also a reason why a lot of managers and scouts and front office people, if they play, tend to be catchers because those guys understand pitching and hitting almost equally. Uh, um, interesting. Yeah. And then also, like, you have to sort of be a field general leader, understand people, deal with personalities. Like, it's a lot of the peripheral stuff that makes catching so hard to project are the things that make you good in sort of an administrative or handling people sort of role. Uh, I, I don't. I forget what the numbers were, but there was some study that showed like of the managers that played a, more than a year or two in the minor leagues, like half of them are catchers, like some ridiculous percentage that you know shouldn't hold up if if there was no like sort of inclination that way or another. Uh, that's all, also what you said is one of the things that the you know say we got a guy that's a third baseman gets to AAA, he's 26, wants to be an area scout. The thing that he learns in that year or two, uh, typically a year or two, sometimes it's nothing, sometimes it's five years. But in that little period, the thing he's learning is usually the position he didn't play. Like, he is a, way ahead of the entry-level guy as far as understanding what to look for in a hitter. Sometimes they can't describe it, but they know what it looks like because they've seen so many guys and they've been in the cage and they give each other advice. and Like, they, they just have so many reps toward those sort of 10,000 hours that they don't need quite as much help. It's more just sort of learning the terminology. Uh, whereas learning the other position, so in, in the case of that third baseman, learning pitchers, like learning the terminology and learning some other stuff. They obviously have experience watching pitchers. They know what to look for, but it's not so much of a projecting. It's more of a an advanced scouting, like what do I do against this pitcher kind of thing, which obviously with going to watch high school, which is more projection. So there's like a little more, a little more learning on the job. And I think most people agree that pitching is easier to evaluate because they just show you what they can do over and over and over. And if you miss something, they'll throw it again like 60 more times. Whereas hitting is a lot more of a, you could go see a guy for one game and it'll be, you know, 0 for 0 with four walks and two foul offs and you didn't really see anything. And then in BP, it's a low energy stroke, so you don't get to really see what he has. It just takes longer. It's more subtle. It's something that you rely on a library, whereas pitching is, you can pick that up very quickly. And I know with the guys that I've been working with, the fan graphs and guys that have sort of asked to, you know, be on board and sort of young scouts in general that don't have a playing background, those guys can grade pitches reasonably well after like a year of watching games. Like it, it happens pretty quickly, whereas hitting is much more. Different. It might have taken me five or six years before I was comfortable like putting grades on hitters. Right. Well, and I think that it, that's also partly revealed um, the difference between the two by just the, the sheer uh, um, number of editions of your hit tool posts, which <laughs> yeah. I think right was it six parts or something like this, right? And, yeah, it was because people would sort of teach you the vague general things that everyone agrees on, which is not enough for you to have any confidence doing this. It's all about repetition and seeing players and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was trying to figure out around year four or five, like, how do I still not get this? I feel like I don't understand it. And I'm one of those people that's sort of a slower learner because I have to completely understand something to get it. And then once it snaps, you know, in, 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 in place, like, then I get it. I can explain it to people. It's all that sort of thing. And this is one of those things where there's so many elements, nobody is willing to ex- explain all of them to you because everybody has a different thing that they look for. Right. And it's also the kind of thing where uh, I can ask an area scout after he sees a guy throw once in a scrimmage, oh, yeah, his curveball flashed to 60, it's a 55. Like, everyone will agree on that, give or take, like, a half grade. 
guys are very cagey about, like, especially hit grades. Like, it's not a thing that they want to sort of advertise because they can look stupid and they don't want to. Right. And so I was, in, I was basically on my own to figure this stuff out. And then you start, like I, like I explained in the post, like you start figuring out, okay, this is a group of things. This is a group. And then you start talking to people about those groups of things. Well, what do you do when you're looking at the sort of play discipline group? What do you look for? And then I had a little experience, like I've said before, working in a front office. Then you get to learn in the front office what do they look for statistically, what's the verbiage in a scouting report you want to look for to sort of be a shorthand for the things you like. Like it was, it was a lot like a grad school of like a thing you went to undergrad for, but you don't really get. And then you go try to get like an MBA and then intern at like Goldman Sachs, and suddenly you kind of get stuff. Like it kind of makes sense. Yeah. It, well, yeah. And actually, the way you were describing it, especially f- for you figuring it out versus. Um, maybe, maybe uh, relative to that that guy who stalled out in double A AA or triple A and is now moving on to a scouting position. It, it the way you were describing it reminded me of the difference between someone who like grew up as a native French speaker or or you know learned French um, when he was really young versus someone who's trying to learn it for the first time in in his twenties or something. Where like when you learn it as an adult you have like a much more mechanical way of going about it and actually you might it might benefit you in some ways because you would you're probably more capable of articulating why it is you understand something and, and what it is you understand but you may not have uh you may not have the same sort of ease with it as someone who you know like as you're saying you know played at the highest level or you know grew up a native speaker Gee, are you are all right, so what I heard from what you just said is you want me to, my fair lady, you into the scouting world. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> well, no, and you could also, uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely interested in it, and I feel, I actually, um, I've enjoyed our last couple conversations here because. I have not. Okay. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. But um, because, well, the sort of thing you're talking about, right, it was like when you, when you become in, when you demonstrate uh, an interest in it, then in, in especially understanding something as, as uh, complex as the hit tool, having like finding a tutor for that is not really a thing that exists um, because I because because maybe some people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to real reveal the fact that either they don't know about it or they do know but it's like it's very much intuitive their understanding of it as opposed to being able to explain it or alternatively they just don't have the time right. Because they're yeah. like, no, I have to do my job, so I don't want to just sit here and explain it to you. Well, yeah, and there's also an, another part of it, which is, like, I feel like I broke it down sort of uh, almost like mathematically, like, you look at this, and if this looks good, then you do that. Like, it's not like you can just, you know, memorize the things that I wrote for 6,000 words or whatever it was, and then go do it, because some of it, like, there, I, was, I remember specifically a guy from, like, three years ago at a showcase where he had bat speed, uh, he had a decent approach. He's like an 80 runner, has like a 60 arm, can play center field, kind of raw. But he was taking BP, and I was like, it looks pretty good. Like, this might, get, might go in like the top two or three rounds. And there's cross checker sitting next to me that I knew pretty well, and he was like, that ah, swing doesn't look right, right? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, it looks mechanically, it looks fine to me. He's like, oh, yeah, I know mechanically it's fine. But it's like, it, this is sort of when I was, uh, you know, still a little green as far as like sort of the stiffness to a swing. Mm-hmm. And it's what he was talking about. He was saying like, all right, think of a big league hitter, that, like a good one, like a 55 or 60 hitter. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, now look at this guy. Does it look like that? And I was like, no, yeah, you're right. It doesn't quite look right. Like, what is that? And he was like, well, it's like a little stiffness here. It's kind of a one-piece swing. Like it's, it, it was sort of, 
it looks like an advanced class as far as, yes, everything adds up, but it's less than the sum of its parts. And I think you're looking at the fact that he's an 80 runner and lowering the bar too low. Like, this is a guy that could go to low A and just swing through a bunch of fastballs and can this guy only hit pitchers that are right here? Which sometimes when you get into sort of the mathematical approach that I kind of laid out, Mm -hmm. you can sometimes skip that part. Like, oh, this guy doesn't look like a big league hitter. Like, maybe he can't hit. And you see a double, you're like, oh, look, he can hit. Like, there's that part of it where you need to get the... The reason I bring that up is you're saying, you know, how, it, I brought the idea of the, the My Fair Lady of, like, teacher, taking, taking someone from terrible, non-existent scouting ability to knowing how to do it. There is still an important part of it, especially at the high school level where there's no background or history where you just see a guy and you have to decide, is this guy a second-round pick or a tenth-round pick? Uh-huh. That can be entirely tied to, do you have a library of thousands and thousands of swings to where you can say, that doesn't look quite right, that's not a second-round pick, even though everything else looks like that. I need to make him a sixth-rounder and kind of come back and monitor how he looks. Right, so yeah, that, yeah. like that part of it has to have the thousands of reps, and that's why I know people have sort of asked me on Twitter before, like, oh, I'm in high school, and I'd like to you know, kind of scout or do some of the stuff you do. Like, what would you recommend? And I may not have responded to all of them, so this can be your answer if I didn't respond. Go to as many games as possible, meet as many people as possible, shut up and ask questions and try to learn stuff. Right, right, and right, right. That's well, the only way to get there. That's it. I mean, even that something as simple as does this um, that, that's that seems helpful. Does this look like someone you've seen at the major leagues, or does it look like you know most of the good hitters that you see? Because you think like so. Uh, I think that Hunter Pence is an interesting example, right? Yeah. Because Hunter Pence doesn't doesn't really look like nope. any, anyone else except who plays. That's why they go in the first round? Right, and so you. But of course, you look at his career. He's had a, quite a good career at this point. An enviable career, um, but name another big leaguer that looks like him. <laughs> right. But that's the thing. And so, if there you, you see someone and you're like, "Yeah, I get he 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 has like you know he's got 80 speed and a good arm and he swings like Hunter Pence," then you maybe th- you should say, "Well, only Hunter Pence has made that work." Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the reason he went in the second round because right. he's big. He checks all the boxes. But literally, we cannot name another big leaguer that looks like that. So. You don't want to make your living, especially outside of the top 10 or 12 picks, drafting guys with no comparables. Because there's a reason there's no comparables. It's because people aren't sure that thing works. And I'm not sure there's another guy that looked like Hunter Pence that flamed out. So I'm, you know, it's not like he doesn't have comparables in the big leagues because they flamed out, because they didn't exist. Which I think is two separate things that people sometimes equate to the same thing. Oh yeah, but that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've talked about a theory in the past, uh, or maybe we've talked about it too, about the, the, it got sort of shortened to Black Swan, saying that if a guy has things, Hunter Pence is a decent example, has things that aren't typical, like on the rubric that people discount, mm-hmm. they may be discounting them too much. And so if a guy is still in the top 10 to 15 or 20 in his draft class, even with these things that maybe uh, people are dinging against his uh, his draft status too much, the fact that he's up there tells you that he is, in the evolutionary sense, sort of a survivor that's the guy you want to bet on more than the guy that is ranked right next to him but has lesser tools and looks completely generic because plenty of those guys have failed before, whereas Hunter Pence, that guy doesn't have a track record of failing because that guy doesn't exist. Right. So maybe that's a that's a guy who's going to beat expectations more often than not. Right. Uh, let's get into some names for, uh, for from the two lists that you'll – because there will be more lists in theory by the next time we speak. Yes. Um, actually, in terms of – well, in terms of – what, is that a sound? Is there a sound going on? I think there's wind chimes. I'm still on the back porch. Nobody complained last week, so. 
Wait, let me let me take off my headphones. There's a there's a very bad storm going on right now in New England. A, I don't know I don't know what's going on. Anyway, the, it's all uh, sunshine and happiness down here. Yeah, that's great. Well, I don't know about the happiness part. Sunshine definitely. Uh, here's a curious thing: a, uh, a player in the Red Sox system who seems to pose a challenge or, or a curious challenge is uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, left-hander who was acquired. I think acquired in the Andrew Miller deal. Is that right? Yes, a one-for-one. A one-for-one, a one right. Um, I think Rodriguez, up to a certain point, I don't know if he'd been generic, but he had not been he had not been a shoo-in for a number two in many organizations. Is that fair to say? Yes, he was not generic. Uh, not generic in that he wasn't very good, but he was generic in that there are a lot of guys like him, the sort of loose, lanky left-hander with kind of average to above-average stuff, but still... Still kind of growing into his body, still growing into his command, could put on some weight. Uh, you're not sure what he is. Could take off, could flame out. Yeah. Right. He's okay. So, so, so it's a, a revelatory point with regard to Eduardo Rodriguez, right? Now, he was he was pretty fantastic after he came over to Boston from Baltimore. Um, yes. I believe he was throwing harder. He was throwing – all right. So, yeah, this is sort of the story is – for the last few years and for the first month or two of this year, he was 90 to 93, would hit a 95, but couldn't necessarily command it that high. And then about a month, maybe month and a half before the trade and for the time after it, he was 93 to 96, which is kind of what everyone thought could happen, but you never were sure if it would. And so the, the conventional wisdom with him was, oh, it's like number three starter if everything goes well, probably more of a four or five. We'll see how the projection goes. And then all of a sudden he's like, I might be a two-starter. Like, But the problem is there's a couple months of this sort of track record. And so the guy that he is now is better than Henry Owens, but the guy that he was before was less than Henry Owens. And sometimes these guys have a spike in velocity and get hurt because their body can't handle it. Sometimes they have a spike and it comes back to where it was. So the, the Red Sox internally seem split. I think it was like – I think it was the same amount of votes for both of them. Uh, but, yeah, so I decided basically that – Rodriguez has shown months of a better player, so I'll I'll go, I'll go with that. Yeah, no, well, it's, it's not like there's a his, an injury history to like scare you off from it. Right, and so that, that's the thing. So uh, I did the uh, the post after that, uh, looking at the the top projections for Red Sox prospects, and Eduardo Rodriguez is not uh, really in the picture, especially relative to Henry Owens and even Brian Johnson, who are both. Uh, fifth overall in the organization in terms of that projection because Brian Johnson and Henry Owens have uh, pitched like themselves for more than four months. Yes, um, they both pitched exactly like they are for multiple years. So that, yeah, I guess they're probably easier on a projection system. Right, and then but and so that's so what you're talking about though is uh, I mean this is one of those differences this is what you know this is obviously the advantage of adding um, it, it's not necessarily qualitative data but it's knowing. It's knowing what to wait and what not to wait. Um, the Steamer projection system doesn't necessarily know that it should be waiting, uh, or or it, does it? Does, it can't necessarily make the choice about what to wait, um, how to wait it. But the yeah. but the but Kylie the Kylie McDaniel system um, says, well, this uh, this is maybe meaningful. This is something that has a better chance than not. Of of uh, having some consequence so far as Rodriguez's future is concerned. Yes, and, yeah, 
And that's uh, that's what I was hoping in general to bring to Fangraphs, which we can, in the future when these things happen, explain what they are. But the idea was I feel like Fangraphs has sort of cornered the market on the best freely available projections and also, you know, warehousing of what's happened with players. But there's obviously another element to that. And I would find sometimes with the, you know, with the posts uh, from people trying to break down players on the site, it would be like, oh, well, the projection says this, the stats say that. Uh, and then they go like, you know, quote Baseball America, which most recently wrote about him eight months ago. And I'm like, oh, let's do better than that, guys. Like, it'd be good if we had, you know, an in-house uh, prospect thing that was updated and could be kind of asked to answer questions as they happen rather than hoping somebody else wrote about it from a scouting perspective. There's only so many outlets where that's kind of thing can happen. So, uh, yes, we have a lot of things in the works behind the scenes with the, with the, that stat wizard Appleman, uh, trying to bring the amount of sophistication on the site and the quantitative statistical things to the scouting things to sort of give you an option to, you know, mix them together as much as you want. Right. Yeah. Let's see. Let's talk about another sort. This is not necessarily the exact opposite, uh, but a player who is more well acquitted by projections, perhaps, than he is uh, from a scouting perspective. Although he's not, he's not junk there either. But that's Garen Chikini. Uh, I mean, so far as the projections are concerned, Garen Chikini should be the Red Sox starting third baseman next year. That's uh, that's probably not likely to happen. Yeah, that's what that's the kind of thing they did last year and got in trouble. So I'm inclined to think they're going to steer clear of that if they have the option. Right. So I mean, w- would you assume that they would start with Middlebrooks again, and then see what happens? I would assume they'll get somebody else, but I'm not. I mean, there are people more well versed on what the scuttlebutt is about the Red Sox offseason. But like I said, they went into what was the last off last year with like three or four rookies, and uh, what Jackie Bradley and Middlebrooks didn't really do anything. Bogarts had a tough season, and then the one that worked out was Betts, who came up late. Like. That's, you know, you have kind of sinkholes at three positions, even though they're good players that should be good in the end. That's how you get in trouble. And Cicchini didn't hit for much power in AAA. Middlebrooks has been not that great for most of his career, in most of his sort of AAA big league career. So I would imagine, since all the scuttlebutt is they're going to spend a bunch of money, is that they'd like to sort of fill each one of those holes and use some of their outfield and pitcher surplus to fill all those holes. Right. Uh, so I would assume they're not going to rely on them, not to say that they won't play or they might, you know, be a backup that plays their way into a second role. No, Jackie Bradley is a player who, uh, at college and then also basically at every level in the minor leagues, uh, controlled the strike zone pretty well. And uh, once he hit the majors, uh, that more or less fell apart. And then even when he went back down to AAA, and I suppose this is always the sort of thing that uh, um, is you know causes concern. Um, and I, I think a similar thing maybe happened to Nick Franklin. Who had always, uh, especially in the high minors, even who controlled the strike zone really well, uh, he got traded to Tampa Bay, went down to the minors there, and it was also not particularly good. Do you, I mean, do you have a sense with regard to Bradley, or if you want to bring Franklin into it as well, what happened? I mean, what, what's happening there? Is it? Is it? I, I could see someone citing confidence as an issue, uh, although I'm inclined to think that there's more to it than that. Yeah, often. The explanation you get after those these kinds of guys have been touted, come up, failed, and then eventually figured out how to make it happen, it's usually stuff that if you were told at the time this is the problem, you'd be like, it's got to be more than that. Like, oh, the game sped up for him. He hadn't seen that kind of stuff. Often it exposed a hole in his swing. He had to adjust his swing. He lost his confidence. He started hacking and then got in a you know, bad 
that pattern. Then he started getting passive because he wasn't confident in his swing. Then he would get behind in the count, and then it was all weak ground. But, like, it's sort of the circle. That's usually the ex- explanation you get for these sorts of things when someone has all of the tools and track record and all that sort of thing that they should succeed and they don't. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, 30% of those guys end up figuring out a way to reach something close to their potential offensively. And the other 70%, uh, you know, I would say is probably evenly split between isn't a big leaguer because he can't hit a lick and it just turned out he can't do it. Uh, or, you know, find out a way to be like a, you know, a, a, a backup role player, maybe have a couple good seasons. Like, uh, that's why, uh, a lot of times in the draft when a team makes a mistake on a guy, like takes him higher than people expect and then he doesn't work out. I've heard multiple teams when you ask them about bus be like, oh, we fell in love with the makeup and, uh, might have got a little over our skis on that one. And I'm thinking like, this guy wasn't a first-round talent, and you took him in the first round because of something that had nothing to do with tools? Like, there are all kinds of guys around there. But what they're basically saying is pitchers and hitters, but we're talking about hitters here, have to make so many adjustments and deal with so much failure and be so coachable and have the work ethic and all these things, even if it's like a guy that's ready to go to double A and presumably could go to the big leagues the year after, like the most advanced guy in the draft. There is so much of that mental stuff that has to be in place to deal with all the different challenges there are between being an amateur and being a big leaguer that if you think this guy has 50 tools, it's enough to be a low-end starter if everything goes perfectly, and you love the makeup, it's like, oh, well, then he'll be able to deal with everything. But I've I've worked in a couple front offices where they've tried to define what makeup is, and they can't even define what it is, much less measure it or project how it's going to change into the future. So you can obviously fault either one of those approaches as far as acquiring talent. Do you want to... Focus on the makeup, focus on the tools. How does that change over time? If it's a double A guy with results, is that different than if it is with a high school guy where you have less predictive results? Um, but that's basically what we're talking about. That, uh, it's also a big part of, maybe I didn't spend enough time on it with the hit tool where. <laughs> yeah, but we need a part, what, seven through ten maybe now. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna go longer than Police Academy. Um, but yeah, but the idea is the uh, things that you would shrug off that you hear about a guy as a high schooler as not that important at this point about the the confidence in himself and like oh he was raised in this sort of household and you're just like oh this is just some guy that has way too much information about this player. Mm-hmm. It may not be predictive at that level, like because things change so much once you get into pro ball and figure out what kind of a guy you are. Like that kid doesn't know what kind of guy he is yet. But that's the kind of stuff that causes these sorts of things, and it's often very hard to tell. And sometimes, like Nick Franklin, these guys are made available uh, in trades, and the team that takes advantage of, or you know, takes advantage because he might suck, but the, the team that gets that guy is usually one that'll have a scout that really believed in him, or an area scout that know, knew him well and wanted him, and they have some sort of information to suggest they think he can make these adjustments. Right. Well, usually, in any case, well, and I guess in any case, in uh, the, you know the, the landscape, the, the current landscape of baseball. When the Rays are trading with the Mariners, I implicitly, for better or worse, trust the fact that the Rays are getting the better end of the deal. Yes, I would generally agree with that, but you can obviously look at the James Shields Will Myers trade and see that that did not end up the first few years going how most people thought it would. It still could end up going that way because obviously Will Myers is, what is it, four more years of control and he could go insane. But, you know, James Shields had a big part in changing the entire complexion of that organization. Some could say, obviously, he wasn't the only reason, but there's almost no price you can put on that by uh, by what happened there. Yeah, well, that's a, yeah, that's, that is a mystery. Uh, that whole thing is a mystery. I don't know if you've heard, but the Royals are in the World Series. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> when did this happen? 
I don't watch baseball games. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, I burned my television when that happened. I didn't know what to do. I was. Are you are you not celebrating the Yost season? Oh uh, well, it's uh, it's it's a it actually is. It's a pleasure to watch because I suppose anytime there's uh, anytime the unexpected happens, uh, that's uh, that can be pleasant to watch. You say, oh, I thought one thing, and now I'm learning something new. I think there's some that's that's a pleasant experience. Yeah, I still feel like on the internet and sort of the circles we run in, there's like a never-ending adjustment where, you know, way back around when Moneyball came out, if you didn't walk, you were worthless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then slowly it was like, oh, this guy's a good base runner. That's the new thing we're supposed to like now. It's it's almost like hipsters in Brooklyn, how we just jump from thing to thing, and it's sort of like you can kind of over-adjust and be like, wait, walks are still good. I think now we're running over towards speed and defense too much. Like, we, we'd still like guys that walk. Like, we might be swinging... T- too drastically to try to find what the next cool thing is or the thing Billy Bean's doing or the thing Andrew Friedman's doing. Like, this is still kind of the same game. It was just there's slight little advantages to be had here and there, not enormous things that which should be the only thing we focus on. Right. And right. it's interesting to see how the Royals are doing it. There's obviously some some uh, maybe adjustments to how the Internet Illuminati uh, <laughs> think uh-huh. teams should be run. There's things to be learned from what they're doing. <clears throat> hey, uh... I want to. Can I ask you about a couple a couple Cubs? I guess. All right. What's going to happen? Um, one thing. One thing you mentioned. Uh, I don't know if it was with regard to any player in particular, but the unique, um, the unique development patterns of catchers. Yes. And the Cubs have a player in Kyle Schwarber, uh, who I think illustrates. Those unique, uh, that unique development pattern. Insofar as, so far, you know, where he's concerned, his bat, if I'm not mistaken, um, is pretty far ahead of his, uh, or his offensive capabilities are ahead of his defensive ones, to the point where, even like his defensive ceiling might not be that high. So it might be only a matter of time before he becomes not a catcher. But can you, can you talk about the Schwarber in the context of his future defensive home? Yes, things have been happening on this front in the last few weeks. So, uh, to give you some background, uh, I saw Schwarber last summer playing for Team USA, and he is roughly speaking six foot two thirty five and looks like a linebacker. And so you're told, oh, you see this guy taking ground balls at first base, like, oh, that guy's gonna catch tomorrow, and you're like, no, he's not. <laughs> but yeah, of course he is, because it's you know sometimes catchers will be six foot two thirty five, but it's like a there's a catcher body for that. And it's not the relatively inflexible-looking linebacker body. That's not what catchers look like. Right. It's a little uh, like it's a little soft, maybe. Like a little, yeah, it's uh, it's like a retired fullback from the NFL that put right. on thirty pounds. That's the catcher body, right? <laughs> hey, but like, it looks like you give you give like a really like a nice hug if you were your uncle or something. <laughs> yeah, you know his, I mean? hands, like, his handshake is so is like broken little girls' hands before. He looks mm-hmm. like that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Not that he doesn't like little girls, but you know things happen. It's like, no, yeah, you know, yeah. and he feels uh, terrible about it. That's the point. yeah. It's enough mice and men, Lenny sort of situation. <laughs> it's that's two literary references today. You should be impressed. Yeah, come on, a little bit repressed. I'm a little bit repressed. That's what I was trying to say. I'm a little bit impressed. Keep going. Go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he ended up catching, and it was like average arm, playable. You'd get some sort of average pop times. Uh, was surprisingly nimble for a guy that size. But it wasn't like he got real low on his crouch. Some things were a little mechanical. Like, it was enough that it worked. And if he couldn't really hit, it's enough you could leave him back there. 
But then when you introduce the sort of Will Myers, Bryce Harper, Alex Jackson kind of conundrum, like, do you mm-hmm. want to leave him back there and work on it when his, his bat could be there in a year and a half or his glove could be there in three and a half years? Right. Do you want to wait three and a half years and then get to the big leagues and realize he's not going to be able to catch anyway because, you know, X, Y, or Z? And so everyone's like, oh, okay, well, then he's not really a catcher. And, and what I just said, my sort of take on him as a catcher, like, he could be average with work. Uh, some... That was the high opinion. Some people were like, no shot he can catch. And people that I really respect were like, yeah, there's no shot. And uh, he, he can move well enough laterally. He can play left field, average arm. Uh, not great out there. I saw him with Daytona after the draft play left field, and there were a couple errors. And But I think he'll be able to be fringy to average there. Uh, I think he probably fits best at first base. will probably end up there down the line, but he can play left for now. Um, so when I'm writing the Cubs list, I'm – Talked to one of my first call was like two weeks ago, and I say, "Oh, is is Schwarber going to catch? Because I've always thought he could be for an aggressive team a backup catcher. You know, catch once once a week, three four times a month. Like he's good enough to stick back there. That you know, he's above the threshold of acceptable. Are you guys? Is it worth uh, holding back the bat? You know, half a season to make sure he's three to four times a month good. Like that seems like a weird decision to have to make. And their guy, one of their guys was. One of their guys was like, uh, instructs are happening now. We're trying him out there right now. We intentionally, because of a long season, didn't want to put him back there and, you know, tax his legs more because, you know, like 600 at bats or whatever. But we're putting him back there now with all of our catching instructors and instructs to see what we have. And in a week, I'll be able to tell you. Okay. So then a couple days ago, I made a call to another guy with the Cubs and I was like, what's the, what was the progress on uh, Schwarber? They go, he will be an everyday catcher next year. We mm-hmm. think he can catch. And I was like, oh. Okay, so in the course of, you know, that week and a half from my first call to my last call, he apparently was very impressive. They said, yeah, the arm's average to slightly above. His release is a little slow, but we're working on it. I, he's throwing sort of average pop times, and he'll never be a really low squat kind of guy, but he's comfortable. He's making the plays. He wants to do it, um, and we think it we think it can work, and he's going to go out probably to double A, maybe to high A, depending on how things shake out, play there, for, you know, four or five times a week, maybe DH and play some left field to keep him fresh. And, you know, we think he can do it. And I was like, this obviously changes things, but I'm not sure I'm ready to project him as he will be a catcher, but we're going to find out next year. Yeah, and I mentioned uh, I mentioned you, one, one thing you said is he wants to do it. That, that seems to be as though it's not a – that's a non-negligible point, right? Yeah, I don't want to crush any other players, but there are – I can think of multiple guys that have been drafted in the top couple rounds – that part of their value was this guy doesn't really have a position, but his sort of body and hands and arm fit behind the plate. We want to convert him, and the player said, "No, you're not. I'm, I'm going to continue playing, you know, left field or whatever." Well, I could also say, you know, now it, on the one hand, he's hurting his own value by that doing that, and you know, probably his chances of getting into baseball. I can also see, g- given what catchers go through, I can imagine someone being like, "Yeah, I'll take my chances in the outfield and see what happens." Well, and it also could be something where if that guy flames out in double-A, all of a sudden he wants to learn catcher now. <laughs> so, and there was another guy, Michael Chavis, from the Red Sox list, where he has the arm strength, he has that body type, and he has very quick feet and decent hands that scouts are like, oh, maybe he could catch. And I actually was taught, taught, I noticed that at a game and asked some scouts, they go, yeah, we've already asked him. He did it for an inning at a showcase this summer. It was okay. He said he's totally in. He's one of those sort of great makeup guys that'll do whatever you want, and if He's like, if somebody else draft me as a catcher, I'm ready to go. And he's like a 60 raw power, uh, you know, power bat that could be a monster back there. And then I talked to the Red Sox. They're like, yeah, we're not even thinking about that. 
Oh, okay. So it was it was the organization that decided that was not. Yeah, and the and same thing with Rosny Castillo. Some teams thought he could play second base and thought that would be a way to get some value. Obviously, the Red Sox have a problem with too many second basemen, but they're like, yeah, we wouldn't have, even if we had no second baseman, we wouldn't play him there. We don't think he can play there. Um, but some teams would try that and maybe try to force him up there. But the Red Sox were in this in this sense less aggressive on both players, and I don't think that's an organizational thing. I, it's perfectly defensible to think those two guys can't play those two positions. Right. Okay, so well, so that's exciting that if Schwarber uh, actually does demonstrate the ability to to be passable back there and uh, get some strikes for his pitchers, etc. Yeah, I mean it's a 55 bat with 70 raw power. If that guy can catch, that's <laughs> I mean that's like all star immediately. Right. I, that, that guy doesn't really exist right now. Right. Uh, among the players who I think have received or in theory, received the best projections uh, on a rate basis for the Cubs. One of them is Aradis Vizcaino. Uh, I say on a rate basis uh, because Vizcaino has not thrown a lot of innings in recent years. In fact, he did not throw any uh, innings in affiliated baseball between uh, in either 2012 or 13. Uh, so this was a year for him just to pitch. I, I, I I think he made it through relatively healthy, although I think exclusively in a relief capacity. And what is the, I guess, what's the prognosis? Do you see him or do you see the Cubs ever experimenting with him in a starting role, or is his health just too much of a question mark for that? They have said the stuff is there to go back to starting, uh, but part of the reason he went to relief in the first place was to simplify things and working around the injuries and all that kind of thing. Uh, so he, they're not going to. Mm-hmm. And he was a guy that has like mid nineties plus curveball closer stuff, usable changeup. And the they had some concerns that he wasn't repeating his delivery well. Uh, they still have stuff to work on. Would you know throw ninety six but flatten up in the zone. And obviously even in AAA that gets hit. And so I think like the expectation coming into the year was we'll send you out for you know a quick jaunt to the minor leagues and then you'll be you know big league late inning guy for us. And it did not go that well. And as you said, this was the season coming off of two straight years missed with elbow stuff. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's no command. And all of a sudden your 70 fastball, 60 curveball plays down. And then you're just getting, you know, tattooed by guys that are your age, not, you know, way younger than you like it was earlier in his career. Right, right. And, uh, and now it's a bit of a worry. And actually multiple guys told me we prefer uh, they have another reliever in the system named Armando Rivero, a 26-year-old Cuban, that went from throwing 91 to 94 with kind of a solid average slider to throwing 93 to 98 with a uh, 55, maybe even a 60 slider. And they're like, this guy's got fringy command, but he's basically what we thought Vizcaino could be. Uh, and Vizcaino is still... It, without saying this, it sounded like they were worried he's going to get hurt again because he's not repeating his delivery and like not repeating his slot and not hitting his spots and it like it just doesn't didn't quite look right even though the stuff is there. Right. So he seems to be one of those early uh, early in his career is named big time power arm might be able to start and then it just each year moves down another peg to now he'll probably be in the twenties on this Cubs list. In uh, last game from the Cubs, we uh, from the Cubs list, we actually discussed him briefly yesterday. Uh, is Jeffrey Baez was interesting because I think last year, if you look at, um, if you were essentially to calculate l- uh, linear weight runs or stolen, uh, that is runs produced by stolen bases, I think Baez was among the best, you know, top three or top five in all the minor leagues last year. When I saw that, uh, I saw I assumed that physically he would be like a Terrence Gore type, 
uh, or Billy Hamilton or Billy Burns type, which is to say slight of build uh, and very fast. Have you looked him up on YouTube? Uh, no, but the point is that he's not. Is the yeah. <laughs> what you're trying to do? I was just say I we, we g chatted about this. Yeah, uh, I was going through my notes. You asked me about Baez, and I said multiple guys in the Cubs organization described him as fire hydrant build. Yeah, and I hadn't seen him before, so I couldn't confirm it. And then as I go through and link to the video for all these guys, the only ones I could find of him were from milb.com, and I believe it was him hitting a home run. And I watched him run the bases, and I was like. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty close to Fire Hydra. That's a big dude. <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I see an image, like a screen cap of him right here. Uh, and I assume, I assumed at first that the aspect ratio was incorrect on the video. <laughs> I was like, oh, like it's a little, a little deformed. But that's actually, I guess, what he looks like is the point. Yeah, and it might be an average runner, probably more fringy right now. But that kind of body, once mm-hmm. you get a little older, loses a step. And nobody entertained the idea that he could play an up-the-middle position. So, yeah, the... I remember we talked, I think, last week about Cicchini being a 40-run, 70-80 instincts guy that can steal a lot of bases, especially at the lower levels. Mm-hmm. This appears to be one of those guys as well. I would not expect that stolen base total to hold up. Right, right. In, say, well, AAA, but maybe up to AA he could keep doing it. And he's got, uh, but he has a good raw power, though. Yeah. I don't know why high. I said that like a fake Italian. Like, he has a good raw power, though, you know. How, how would an Italian Yoda sound? <laughs> uh, he has power. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think Yoda is Italian. He does. His name does end with a vowel. I get which true. is an argument for it. Although, do we know what Yoda's last name is? It could be like Yoda Johnson. We don't know that. I believe it is Yoda Bianucci. Yeah. <laughs> I. Uh, oh, um, a couple things. Uh, no, let's just one thing. Oh, we're going to see each other soon in uh, person. Wait, you, why? Because we're going to see each other in Arizona. I suppose we are. Do you have your dates nailed down yet? I do, yeah. I do. Would you care to say them? Because I have mine nailed down as well. I don't know how yeah, much. Yeah. Uh, the 31st, October 31st. Okay. And then I leave um, the 5th, the morning of the 5th. All right, yeah. I'll be there the whole time. Okay. All right. Okay, yeah. Well, so wait, are you going to uh, – how should I get from the airport to the hotel? I feel like this is an off-air conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, listen. Uh, we have one more episode before then. If some, if Kylie can't drive me, if you're in the, the Phoenix area, I could maybe use a ride. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but all right, let's end the. Let's end this then. Uh, oh wait, I, I had one more story. My story that I teased last week about Roger Clemens. Oh okay, yeah. Go go for it. Um. So I'm working for the uh, Yankees at their complex in Tampa, and we were. It wasn't at our pay grade, but we were kind of surprised. We were like, oh, the Roger Clemens is coming out of retirement whenever that was. I don't know, 2008, something like that. Uh, so I pull into work that day, and there's a bunch of, like, news trucks sitting outside the office, and they had to, like, you know, check my ID and all this stuff that they never do for me to get into the office. And uh, and so we're all back there in the office part, which is, like, it's, like, half office and half, like, clubhouse for the GCL team in Tampa. And so we're like, is he back there? Like, is he coming up here? Like, where is he leaving? How does he avoid the media? Like, what's, how does this work? Like, we just didn't, weren't used to having that much media, like, following people around. Uh, which later we had Hideki Matsui come on rehab, and we found out exactly where 50 Japanese photographers go, because they were everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of like, alright, well, we would go back and eat lunch. They would set up, like, a lunch for the coaches, and then the front office people would go back there and eat. And so we're going back into the clubhouse after the game is over to eat. And as I'm walking back, I was talking to someone about, yeah, I wonder if Clements is back here. And then I turn around and ran into Roger Clements. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he looked at me and was like, uh, hey, 
the rocket. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's great. No, no, he said, hi, I'm Roger. Hi, I'm and, Roger. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Roger. And by the time I answered, he was about 20 feet past me. Um, oh, yeah. So it was a little bit of a bummer. And then, you know, I was uh, the guy that I was walking with staying in front of me, and he had already met him. And so we're like walking back to the to get to get lunch, <laughs> and uh, we we walked in and uh, and some of the guys were there like oh should be Roger we saw he just left and walked that way I was like oh yeah yeah he's like how did he introduce himself I said oh he said hi I'm Roger um he was like oh it's funny I was like why he's like you should introduce himself as the Rocket and I was like really that seems like kind of weird to introduce yourself by your nickname when everybody kind of knows what your real name is yeah. And they go, well, look at this. And they pointed, <laughs> they pointed at his locker, and his locker, instead of saying Clemens 22, said the Rocket. 22. The Rocket, yeah. Oh, anytime you can get the definite article into your name, then you're doing pretty well. Yeah, so I was a little surprised by this, but, you know, it's like a minor league rookie ball locker room. What do they care? It's not official. It's not mm-hmm. like a placard in the big leagues. And uh, and so <laughs> one of the guys there was like, uh, yeah, he called one of the trainers last night and was like, uh, you know, had a question about his rehab. And he's like, yeah. And then, like, the trainer walks in and is like, hey, he calls me, like, 2 in the morning. And he's like, hey, it's a rocket. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, and they asked him a question. It was like, you know, goes through the whole thing. And I was like, it's kind of funny. Like, it all sounds like a, like a Seinfeld character. Um and then, uh, and then, so then he has his big, like, outing across the street at Legends Field. And so we all go in, like, the suite, and we're, like, you know, watching it, like, Tim Kirchin's there. And it's a sold out, like, 9,000 people for his, like, two innings, and everybody leaves. And so as we're, like, getting ready to leave in, like, the third inning, one of the clubbies walks up and is like, hey, uh, I gotta go, uh, to Outback to get the spread. Uh, Clemens gave me his credit card to pay for the spread. That's sort of, you know, what the big leaguers do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you guys aren't gonna believe this. And we're like, what? He's like, look at the card. <laughs> it was a black card and it said The Rocket on it. Yeah, there you go. His credit card says The Rocket on it. Which I'm pretty sure, aren't credit cards supposed to have your real name? Isn't that like a legal aspect of, I don't know, maybe it's not. Maybe I just assume that's what it Has was. Has he legally changed his name to The Rocket? Do we have any evidence to the contrary? I've, I don't know. It's a good question. So yeah. we're walking out of the stadium, and the clubbies in like his beat up pickup truck, and he's like, "I bet this thing has no credit limit on. It. Like I could go buy whatever I want, and this truck's worth a thousand dollars." No, the surprising going- thing is, with regard to if he it really does have a black card, the surprising thing is that the clubby had to go to Outback to make this happen because uh, typically there is a they, I don't know they provide they do a lot of things for like I know with with regard to that. Um, um, there would be if you if you just call you just call American Express and you say I need two tickets to this thing can you book them for me and they'll go ahead and do it all for you. Really? Yeah. Huh? Maybe I, I should the advantage. And it's like a huge a- annual fee though to have it. I actually, uh, me and a couple of my friends all got invitations to do the black card in the mail a couple of weeks ago. And we're all comparing notes because we're like, is this worth it? Because it seemed like a lot of like this sort of concierge stuff you're describing that I'd have to be like somebody that needs a personal assistant to appreciate this sort of stuff. And I believe it was a $600 annual fee, which you know, you don't need you don't need that. Not not quite what I need. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I thought that was it's funny to reveal how much he likes his own nickname in a in a story of threes in this classic comedy structure. Yeah. Well, it was really uh, tops in the genre of comedy. Your story. Monty Python is furiously trying to top it right now. They're yeah. having trouble. Yeah, they are. Are they all still alive? That was pretty mean. Yeah. Are they alive? I, I believe so. I know a few of them are. Oh, I'm just seeing people die. This direction we go. All right. Uh, Sounds like it. you'd be fun at a party too. Yeah. Get off of the uh, get off of this phone. 
But uh, let's say goodbye first. Uh, Earl, let me thank you first on behalf of the listener. Thank you, Kyla McDaniel. Thank you. Yep, that's been uh, Kyla McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.